Welcome to Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast with Elizabeth Crawford, where I dish with trendsetters, tastemakers, and industry experts about everything from emerging trends to marketing strategies to regulatory pressures. Before the threat of the COVID-19 prompted Washington, D.C. and other cities to ban large gatherings, nearly 900 school nutritional professionals from across the country converged on the nation's capital to brainstorm how vulnerable children can continue to access breakfast and lunch in the event of widespread school closures due to the coronavirus. As part of the School Nutrition Association's 48th Annual Legislative Action Conference on March 8th through the 10th, they also shared strategies for encouraging students to eat more fruits, vegetables, and whole grains, heard from legislators about their efforts on the Hill, to reshape the school meal program and lobbied Congress to increase student access to healthy school meals while also easing regulations that they perceived as overly burdensome and distracting from their primary goal of serving students. To learn more about the challenges facing school nutrition professionals and how SNA is working with its members and legislative leaders to find solutions, this episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast features SNA's Director of Media Relations, Diane Pratt-Hevner. Diane shares SNA's top priorities for the coming year as outlined in the trade group's 2020 position paper, as well as the talking points for members who met with congressional representatives on Capitol Hill on Tuesday, March 10th. Elizabeth Cowells-Johnson, also who helps manage SNA's public relations, chimed in with ideas for how the CPG industry can help school nutritional professionals better feed students. A top priority for the nearly 1,000 school nutrition professionals gathered at the Legislative Action Conference was how to ensure that children who rely on schools for breakfast and lunch continue to have access to those meals even if their schools close in response to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. In a letter SNA sent to the U.S. Department of Agriculture on March 5th, The trade group asked the agency to streamline and expand schools' ability to serve students' meals through the summer food service program during unanticipated school closures. As Diane explains, SNA also asked for more wiggle room on requirements that students consume those meals together so as to minimize the risk of disease spread. We've got 22 million kids every day who receive a free or reduced price meal. And for some of these kids, they're getting about 60% of their calories from school breakfast and lunch combined. So, you know, for those families, school lunch and school breakfast are a critical source of nutrition for their kids. And if there are these unanticipated closures, you know, losing access to those meals can have a real impact on the health and well-being of those children. So, you know, our members are always cognizant of that. Um, They often are working with local uh, food pantries to, you know, have shelters and backpack programs. And in the summer, we see them launching summer meal programs to make sure kids don't uh, go hungry over the summer. Um, But this 
is not something we've ever encountered before. And most of the uh, school meal programs are modeled after uh, congregate feeding. Um, in fact, they require congregate feeding. So even in the summer food service program, in the national school lunch program, um, students are supposed to consume the meals uh, where they're served. Um, USDA has provided some flexibility on congregate feeding requirements in the cases of extreme heat in the summer food service program. Um, so there is room for them to provide waivers. And on Friday, they announced that they would allow state agencies to apply for a waiver um, for summer food service programs to allow them um, to um, bypass congregate feeding requirements, um, as well as allow them to operate at a school site. Typically, a uh, summer food service program is at an off-site location. And so states can apply for a waiver where the school could potentially, um, if they're you know, equipped to do so, um, establish a grab-and-go um, program allowing students to just pick up a bag and, and go. Um, so that's an option that some school districts are looking into. Uh, however, um, summer food service program, your program has to be serving students, a student population that's 50% free or reduced or greater. So it's not a program that's available everywhere. In fiscal year 2019, I think it was 47,000 sites across the country for summer food service programs. So, um, you know, we anticipate the need could be greater than that. And we're, our members are talking with each other here at the conference about what options might be available to them um, to try and meet the need in the time of a closure. But there's so much to take into account, um, you know, and, and I think USDA and the state agencies and our members are all trying to process what options are available that would be safe both for the students and the staff. In addition to ensuring children have access to food during closures, Diane notes that schools are exploring how to reduce the risk of food waste and lost funds related to those emergency closures. A lot of our members are used to uh, working with their local emergency management teams and food banks to host shelters in their schools and um, engage in other food delivery um, programs after disasters. Um, and I'm sure they're, you know, thinking about those things as well. You know. However, I will say this, uh, there has been, as you know, a big expansion in Breakfast After the Bell, and primarily it's a similar model in that, you know, these are meals that have to be either in grab-and-go bags uh, distributed from hallway kiosks, and that could be a model that could be utilized here or, you know, packaged for service in the classroom. Um, so, you know, some of our members will have items on hand. Um, and I think that's part of why SNA is, is trying to um, work with USDA to identify as many options as possible because we have schools that, you know, may have a fully stocked kitchen uh, of food that 
may not last for a 20 day closure. Um, you know, and to be able to have the opportunity to get that food in a child's hands, a child who needs that nutrition, um, and also be able to have it in a way that it's reimbursable so that the meal program can recoup some of the losses that they'll face as a result of this would be, you know, good for our member programs. SNA members also want to increase student access to school, breakfast, and lunch more broadly beyond the current COVID-19 crisis, which is why they're calling on Congress to eliminate the reduced price category for breakfast and lunch. On the surface, offering families who make less money a discount for breakfast and lunch may sound benevolent, but Diane explains that the cost is often still out of reach for parents, placing them in the awkward position of having to deny a meal to their children. When a student goes into the cafeteria, they can receive a meal either as a free student in the free category, in the reduced price category, or the full pay category. If your income is between 130 and 185 percent of the federal poverty level, then you're eligible for a reduced price meal. And for breakfast, that's 30 cents a breakfast. For lunch, it's 40 cents. And it may not sound like a lot, but for families that are really on the margins, you know, particularly in urban areas like the D.C. area or near New York City, and you're looking at, um, you know, $47,000 a year for a family of four, that's not a lot. And that 40 cents, if you've got two or three kids in school and it's every day um, and breakfast as well, that really adds up. And a lot of those families can end up in the position of having to decide whether the student gets a meal that day or not. Um, you know, there's so much research in how important school meals are to academic achievement and success. We want to make sure that especially those vulnerable and at-risk kids are getting the meals and that 40 or 30 cent co-pay shouldn't be a barrier. So, you know, we've talked a lot about how ideally school meals are as important to learning as textbooks and teachers. Ideally, school meals would be provided just like transportation and textbooks, um, universal free for all students. Um, and as a critical first step in that direction, we're encouraging Congress to eliminate that reduced price category so those most vulnerable students can receive the meal for free. We were excited to see, um, you know, several of the Democratic candidates uh, for president talking about universal meals, free meals for all students on the campaign trail. So, you know, we're hopeful that we'll have folks receptive to this. Um, we certainly have heard a lot of concerns uh, this last few these last few years over unpaid meal debt and the fact that there are some students, um, you know, who may not get a meal uh, if they're unable to pay. And if you recognize um, how important that meal is to student success and are concerned about the idea of a child going without a school meal, this is the place you should start in terms of addressing that concern, making sure those kids who are, are most vulnerable can, can receive that meal for free. SNA members also asked Congress to help increase student access to school meals 
by expanding direct certification with Medicaid for free and reduced price meals to all states. Diane explains that the pilot program in 19 states showed promising results, and as such, SNA wants all schools to have this option. One of the great things about the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act was that there was language in there that broadened the use and required states to increase the amount of students that they directly certify for meals. So um, they basically told uh, the state agencies to work together um, to do data matching. Um, Run your list of SNAP eligible, SNAP enrolled families um, through your school enrollment lists and identify, you know, kids who are already eligible for SNAP and automatically certify them for free meals. Um, and schools do that with SNAP and TANF. There was a demonstration project started to do the same thing with Medicaid-eligible students. There are 19 states that participated in that demonstration project. It started off small and expanded a bit, but we've got 19 states now that once they're done running the names for SNAP and TANF, they run um, another list of the Medicaid-eligible families. There are a lot of students out there, um, you know, maybe they're in a healthcare crisis that uh, makes them eligible for Medicaid, but they're not enrolled in SNAP. and that allows those students to also benefit from free meals or reduced price. There are some states that even certify kids for reduced price through Medicaid. So we just want that option available to all states. According to Diane, getting the food to students is only part of the battle. The other is making sure they have enough time to eat it. She explained that short lunch periods mean many children do not have enough, quote, seat time, to actually eat their food, which leads to increased food waste and less nutrition actually going into their bellies. With this in mind, she said SNA members asked USDA and the U.S. Department of Education to work with the school food authorities to develop guidance on ensuring students have adequate time to eat breakfast and lunch. SNA members also asked legislators to ease the administrative burden of feeding students by preserving a controversial final rule published in late 2018 that, depending on who you ask, either rolled back or, quote, paused for flexibility some of the nutrition standards set in the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act. Diane explained that SNA sees the child nutrition program's flexibilities for milk, whole grains, and sodium requirements final rule as offering flexibilities for milk, sodium, and whole grains requirements while maintaining other standards. Perhaps more important to SNA members, though, were provisions that would simplify monitoring requirements. Um, In December 2018, uh, USDA issued final rule flexibilities for milk, sodium, and whole grains. And those are in effect now um, and being utilized in school districts across the country. Um, But it was in January that they proposed a new set of flexibilities to simplify monitoring. The majority of that proposed rule revolves around monitoring of school meal programs. Um, One of the things that it would do is something that we've been advocating for a while for uh, to 
move the administrative review cycle from every three years to every five years for districts that are consistently in compliance with the rules. And that's just because, as you're hearing, the amount of paperwork and administrative burden on these programs is pretty overwhelming and we were even seeing that state agencies were having a very difficult time keeping up with that shorter review cycle and still having enough staff and resources to be able to help the districts that are struggling. So again, a lot of that rule is really about streamlining monitoring, but it also contained provisions to simplify meal service. Um, and that's where we've seen a lot of um, uh, reports that, um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about how extensive those changes are. Um, for the most part, our members are saying um, that those changes would be very minimal. And both the proposed rule and the current flexibility still protect the calorie caps, fat caps, the target one sodium reductions, they still require schools to serve the same size of vegetables every day and every week. Schools still have to offer weekly servings of dark leafy greens, red orange vegetables, legumes. So, you know, there's not going to be dramatic changes. Um, to school menus as a result of the proposed rule. It's more about making small changes um, to make things easier for the folks planning menus. SNA members also asked Congress to strengthen the school meal program by increasing USDA food commodity support for the school breakfast program to allow more students to benefit from breakfast and, quote, help schools cover the costs and advance USDA's mission of supporting America's farmers. While connecting with legislators was a primary focus of the conference, the program also allowed attendees to share best practices for boosting student participation in school meal programs at a culinary creation session. I was in a culinary, the culinary creation session as it was really fun um, and exciting to see the kind of information sharing that goes on at our conferences and how excited the audience gets at you know new ideas for not only increasing variety on the menu and but just um, you know tips and tricks for making those meals more appealing to students. Um, one of the panelists was just talking about, you know, some of the little things that can be done from, you know, blanching your fresh broccoli to make it more vibrant and colorful and uh, appealing for kids. You know, you want them to be eating those items and, you know, that little step can make the difference to get um, a child who really eats with his eyes um, to give that a try. Um, and then, uh, you know, to, to bigger um, changes, uh, one of the other directors was talking about her new pho bar. Um, it, uh, Spring ISD was the district doing that. They brought in a chef and are really experimenting with a lot of customization for their meals. And um, food bars is a big trend that we particularly see at the high school level because so many of these students are used to going out to eat 
in places like Chipotle or, you know, some of the higher end salad places where, you know, there are a lot of choices and you can really um, customize that meal and they're expecting that same level of service from their school meal program. Um, so it's fun to see how some of those culinary trends with different ethnic foods and different um, service models are working their way into school cafeterias. And, you know, those recipes and food bars can be a great way to expose kids to vegetables that they might not have already used um, or, you know, that the kids might not have been exposed to previously. And, uh, you know, that session talked a lot, too, about trying to make the cafeteria fun, particularly for the elementary set. You know, she was talking about her Dr. Seuss day and her May the 4th be with you day. And, you know, those are the little things that, you know, the frontline staff get really excited and engaged in and try and encourage uh, kids to participate in. It helps boost participation in school meal programs. Um, and then they, uh, you know, are often finding those fun ways to weave in. Um, we, we see a lot of student taste testing done to try and get kids um, to try the fruits and vegetables that are a little less common. Um, so like a Fear Factor Friday, you know, <laughs> try the butternut squash, <laughs> you know. While school meals have come a long way in the nutrition standards and creativity front, school nutritional professionals say more can be done. But to do it, they could use a little help from the food industry. Another member of SNA's public relations team, Elizabeth Johnson, explained that during one conference session, several attendees shared wishes for how the industry could help them do their jobs better. For example, she said they asked for help making meals more desirable through creative packaging that is either fun or better replicates what students see at fast casual restaurants. Also, she said several attendees asked for marketing materials to explain what foods are and make them more appealing. They also expressed a need for new equipment to not only prepare foods, but also deliver the foods efficiently to students. This would include items like kiosks or grab-and-go coolers. Some industry players already are stepping up to make these wishes come true. For example, earlier this month, the PepsiCo Foundation and the youth wellness nonprofit Gen Youth funded and distributed 45 grab-and-go breakfast carts for schools across the country that will be used to serve 4.5 million breakfasts to 25,000 students. While Elizabeth noted that SNA members are extremely grateful for generous donations like these, she said they could still use additional similar help from other industry players. And with that, we've reached the end of another episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast. I hope you'll join me again next week for another installment. And to ensure that you remember, I encourage you to subscribe to us on iTunes. Until next time, this is Elizabeth Crawford wishing you a productive and profitable week.